from New York City. A podcast from working actors, directors, and playwrights. This is the Crime Havoc Company. Hi, this is Jennifer Reichert, the producer of the Cry Havoc podcast. Today's episode is the second half of our discussion of producing your own work. In our last episode, we discussed the role of a producer in a theatrical production and some of the critical big picture questions that an artist must consider when undertaking the role of producer. Now we join the conversation in progress as the group discusses practical tips they have learned from their time in the producer's chair. Let's start off with pre-production. I mean, one thing I will, I, I, we've actually alluded to about pre-production is to give yourself a good amount of time for it. Because, again, part of your thing is that if you're cutting your teeth as a producer, you are going to make mistakes. Even if you don't make mistakes, things will go wrong, as Jersey has said. And this is the time where it's very fixable. Where if you've given yourself a three-month lead time before you go into rehearsal to say, we're going to be having regular meetings, we're going to be working on things, we're going to be checking the budget, and so that before you ever go into rehearsal, you've already discovered, wait a minute, we thought this two-floor set would cost much less than it actually does, and now we need to cut all the scenes that happen upstairs. Much better to to make that plan and discover three weeks before you go into rehearsal, you're not going to be able to have a second floor than the first. But things that do happen in the, uh, in the pre-production period, let's talk about staffing. Are there any thoughts about how you want to staff a show? And especially or in light of the fact that you presumably are in some way on the staff of the show? I, I think generally the more staff you can have the better. Not you know, in in unnecessary roles. I, I guess, I don't know if somebody here said it or we were talking about it at some other time, but looking at the production list of another production to see what the various roles are and seeing um, how many, of, at least of the major departments, you can have a staff person who's responsible for each department. That's the, I think, the bare minimum of staffing you need, you know, definitely a, you know, a director, a stage manager, and all the creative departments, and then marketing and uh, you know development. If you uh, you know development starts to get a little bit le you know less necessary to actually produce something, but um, you know well, the money has to come from the somewhere. money has to come from somewhere. So I guess if you are playing that role of development, it it would help you if somebody else was doing it, but. Uh, but I think it's, it's, I mean, what you said before about the looking at the list, you know, go to a Broadway show and actually probably go to a show at a major not-for-profit theater and borrow, um, because even if you aren't officially a not-for-profit, I think most independent first productions are effectively run like not-for-profit productions mm -hmm. and not just because they don't usually make money. Um, <laughs> but that idea of, of getting it and going through and just being sure you have someone for every job it's okay if there's one person who's doing five different jobs, but you do want to make sure that there is someone who is taking responsibility for each role that a production right. needs to have. So later on, you're not like, who's doing this? And it, the answer is nobody. 
-hmm. so that even like you said, you can do multiple things, but somebody's got to be doing everything. There are going to be jobs that need to be filled with every production inevitably, sort of uh, non-negotiables. But then, given the needs of a production or a play, you really do have a responsibility as a producer to sit down and see what roles do I need to fill, either by bringing in other people or by filling them myself. But what, what, um, what things need to be accounted for? Do I need, uh, to what extent do I need people, you know, assistant stage managers and crew backstage? Um, what kind of uh, lighting board, soundboard operation do I anticipate needing? Um, in terms of working with the actors, do I need any kind of choreography? Do I need an accompanist? Do I need musicians? Do I need fight choreography people? Do I need an accent coach? There are different combinations of those needs that are going to be present for a different show. And to put yourself in a position early on where you know what you're going to need gives you opportunity to solve those problems. Also, the earlier you know what your needs are, the sooner you can get your creative team in a room and find out where those overlaps may already exist. Because just in the same way that you're, you're going to inevitably in your first show be doing multiple jobs, there may be people who are willing and qualified or interested in doing the same thing. That the person that has a small role acting wise in your show might also have always wanted to do publicity and work as a PR person. That would be amazing and is what happened uh, once when I was producing a show. Um, where you can find those overlaps, where you, who might have accent background or combat background, um, all that stuff. Uh, how you can best use the people you have mm -hmm. also will give them an opportunity to see things from multiple sides and will be great for morale and great for mission building in terms of the production. And I think it's also important to realize that if you do do that, which I do think is a, can be a very useful thing to sort of recruit from within. I mean, one, I think it's very helpful if it's not a quid pro quo. I happen to not be a big fan at all of theaters that are like, that are not theater, because there are theaters where it's really appropriate. I'm a big fan of like college theaters where they say if you want to work here, you need, need to do technical work so that you can learn technical work. I think that's something you should do when you're in college. But if you're purporting to be a professional or quasi-professional experience, I, I generally think if you're being hired to be, a direct, to be an actor, being there to be an actor should be enough. And if you'd like to volunteer for more, that's terrific. That's a personal bias. Other people feel differently. But, but I do think that that is an important thing, though, that if you have said, oh, uh, you know, spear carrier number one, you've always wanted to do publicity, terrific. That does not end your responsibility as producer to ensure that the show is well publicized. <laughs> you know, that, you know, and even frankly, if you hire somebody to do pre to, to, to be a press agent for your show, that does not end your responsibility as a producer to be sure that it's done well. I mean, certainly there's a lot of cases in which it's much easier to oversee a process than it is to do it yourself. That said, there are also a lot of situations where it's easier to do it yourself than to oversee a process with someone who really doesn't know what they're doing. So, you know, it is something that you kind of need to use your judgment right. whether, you know, whether you need to do it yourself or whether having a core people of four people who really believe in the project and are smart and you know you trust them and are willing to work their ass off to get the show done is sometimes a much better setup 
than a team of 30 people and you can't find half of them most of the time. You know, you just need to kind of make make that call. I think one other important thing in terms of staffing, it goes back to something I said before about the, well, sort of the humility, but to be sure to really talk to your staff when you hire them about what you expect from them and what they expect from you. And that idea of asking them if they need staff. Mm -hmm. um, and to work that out because it is something that you don't want to assume and even if you're not you, you know and in many cases you don't actually sign contracts in a small production um, you know in a, in a little theater someplace but you really need to be sure that you've got terms with the person because I have been in several situations where you know this has happened at least three times I can think of where the designer has come and laid their final design down and the you know, producer has said, terrific, when are you going to start building it? And I said, what do you mean start building it? You asked me to design it. I assumed you had a technical director and a team who would build it. I, I'm going out of town. I'm not available to build it. Um, and there's a lot of, on small productions, it's fairly common for a set designer to also TD the production. But those are the sorts of things you got to be willing to look stupid by asking a stupid question because it's much better to look stupid by asking a stupid question three months before you open and have the designer say, oh, of course I'm going to come build it, than the day you're supposed to move into the theater to discover that no one has been drafted to build your set. And if they need, if they need additional staff, it's your responsibility to find them. You know, if they need a set, a, a crew of five people to build because they can't do it by themselves, which may be very reasonable, it's your responsibility to find those five people. They may have five friends that could help them out one Saturday, but it's not their responsibility to have a crew unless that's the terms that you've agreed to ahead of time, which is you need to find whatever crew you need or I need to find the crew that you need. And the number of times I will tell you, because I, I frankly, I like building stuff. So when I've been doing smaller productions and I know there's a build day for the set and it's a matter of the, you know, the, uh, the set, you know, the set designer is bringing three of his friends and one of the actors who knows how to use a screw gun is going to come. And I'm like, all right, I'll come and help build too. I'm glad to do that. The number of times that I have heard people on those days grumbling about the fact that the producer is not there when they're there calling in favors and skipping a day of work to do it, it happens a lot. Even if all you're there to do is, if you don't know how to use a screw gun, but you can hold things while people cut it and carry it, it goes a long way towards morale and it can go a long way in the opposite uh, situation of morale when people are feeling like you have left them high and dry to do your job for them. And the chances are good that you're off doing some of the many, many other responsibilities of your job, but that's one of the times where you need to be doing the one that everybody else is doing. Yes, or making it clear that you're not. But I remember one very, very clearly one situation where uh, the person needed to build the set, the producer didn't get them a place to do it, finally offered them to come and build it on their back porch, and in the middle of winter, and the person sat inside and watched television while the set designer and their three friends built a set on their back porch. And that set designer was furious about it. And I remember very clearly talking about she didn't even come out to offer us cocoa. <laughs> <laughs> ah.
And if you're looking for a staff of five to help build a set, maybe you want to look for a staff of four and be the fifth person or the first person because it's making it easier on yourself to have, a, have to ask favors of fewer people um, and put yourself in that position. But also, you, as we've said before, you want to get that experience. You want to get in there. You want to be useful to the production. Um, it's going to behoove you to do that. The set will be built faster. The, the, you, know, you will learn more. Um, your people will be happier. Uh, and the earlier that you account for all of this stuff, I mean, as we're talking about getting things ready, your ducks in a row, it'll give you more time to deal with the possibility that things might go wrong because things are going to go wrong. <laughs> so the more time that you set out and the fewer opportunities you create, you produce as a producer to let things go wrong, the fewer things are going to go wrong. But something's still going to go wrong. Uh, what about a very specific kind of staffing, which is casting? How involved and in what ways should the producer be involved in the casting? I think that's going to be a different answer for every scenario. If you're talking about being a producer who's going to be acting in the production, you, there's obviously some level of control that you, you know, you're presenting the project as it is to a director. Um, if you're if you're not acting in it the it, it goes back to the the relationship you build with the director when you're hiring the director articulating what level of involvement you want to have making that decision presenting the actors that you might like to be considered presenting the actors that you would like the director to use or trusting the director to do the casting yeah, and I just think the best route generally is to be sure the director knows that they are casting the show and you are interested in being involved in the conversation. You know, because I think if, if you present it that way, a director will be very open to letting, to, to, to hearing what the producer has to say and becoming involved in the conversation about it. Um, because I think on one hand, technically, you know, the producer could pull rank and insist on something. In fact, the producer, I think in this case, should never pull rank. It really is, you know, the casting is a huge part of the director's job. And I think in like, except in very extreme circumstances, the producer should defer to the director. But I do think it's something, I mean, I enjoy casting with the producer mm -hmm. when I'm directing and having mm -hmm. the producer be involved in the discussion about it. This comes up in in more in large-scale productions where, I, I guess more in commercial productions, but that, that the producer might be interested in the, the level of name recognition. Mm -hmm. I guess that doesn't necessarily affect a smaller production so much, but if you are trying to attract, if, if part of your goal for the production is to attract a certain audience that you might want to have the director hire somebody who is of a certain level of fame or fanciness, as the case may be, you know, to, to say that person isn't fancy enough or famous enough to be, to be the lead. Yeah. Uh, that could be a, a source of input that has to be considered. Yeah. And you certainly, as the producer, can put limits on the pool of people who they have to draw from. I mean, for instance, you can say, this is a non-union production, you can't cast anyone who's in the union. I mean, that's a totally reasonable thing for um, 
for a producer to say. Again, I think it's very important before the director sign on the job, sign on to the job that they do it. Mm -hmm. If you are running, if you are a producer and you're trying to create a repertory company and you have a group of 20 actors that you want them to draw from, mm -hmm. that's a very fair thing, but you need to tell them. If you are, you know, the producer of your local church production and the person, the people they cast from need to be members of the church. Again, totally reasonable but you do need to say that up front. So you can yeah. set the parameters for the casting, but not necessarily say this person, this person, this person, but you can say choose from among these people. And I think relatedly um, to casting, it's also really up to the producer to decide if you're in a position where there are potentially equity actors involved, what contract you want to do it under. Again, there are... Um, we perhaps could do an entire episode on this uh, at some other point, you know. But there are many different types of con of contracts that that exist for actors who are members of the union, and you know, some of them allow for actors to work for free or for a travel stipend. But there are limits on that. Like no one else can be making a salary if the actors are working for free. You can only have a certain budget. You need to give other equity actors, you know, uh, free ticket. I mean, there there are many. Um, uh, you know guidelines to do it but then there are also others you know other other different tiers of contracts that you can have and it really is up to the producer to decide and then abide by the rules of that contract i think it's also really important in terms of the unions in and in relationship to your budget as well because there are a lot depending on which contract or code you're going to work under and the way that the various unions interact with each other you can find yourself in a position, hopefully in pre-production, um, where you would like to hire a particular designer who has a particular salary requirement. And that, even if that designer is not a part of an acting or directing union, as an example, it could affect what you have to pay all of your union members in all parts of your staff. So it's, it's an incredibly important decision, not only in terms of which contract, but also um, to be prepared to navigate the, um, the responsibility of, of, especially of pay, to the various members of the company. Yeah. And I, I've, I've recommended in, in earlier episodes similar, I think in the rehearsal etiquette one, I said it's a worthwhile thing to get the equity rule book and mm -hmm. abide by the rules even if you are not an equity production. Similarly, uh, except for some specific points that I think would become clear, like letting equity actors come to the show for free, I think it's worthwhile to you know, download the uh, showcase code agreement, which is kind of the lowest level agreement that uh, equity uh, has to have their actors work. Even if you're not doing an equity production, to download it, see what they say you really need to do to responsibly produce the show, and you know abide by those uh, by by those guidelines. I mean, people have come up with them, and that's kind of what the union has said. This is what is the barest thing that counts as a professional production, and you should try to be professional. In somewhat the same spirit, um, you you definitely you want to uh, abide by those rules and. Be aware of them before you embark on it. Make sure that before you enter any type of contract situation or know which code you're going to be operating under, know what the differences are. Just educate yourself about the ins and outs mm -hmm. of the way the unions work. Um, and by the same token, you know, if you're doing somebody's play, you get the rights to the play, which is, you know, just do that. It's surprising how many people don't 
remember that step, do it early, and also be aware of what the potential terms of the rights to the play are. If your goal that you articulated responsibly because you listen to this podcast episode and are doing all these things is to get uh, uh, reviews uh, and then the terms of uh, your producing a showcase of that play are that you can't be reviewed, that's going to be a problem. So you want to, because you know, things go wrong sometimes. So you (laughs) need to give yourself enough time to deal with those eventualities because stuff can happen like that. Yeah, and and I think that that idea, of course, of finding out if it's a published play, what are the terms, where can you get the rights, are the rights available? I mean, there are very many situations where there are rules about there can't, can't be two productions within a certain distance from each other, and you decide we're going to do a production of, you know, The Crucible, and it turns out there's another, you know, there's a professional production nearby and you can't do a production of Crucible again. Much better to find that out earlier on than later on. But I also think it's really important, even if it's not a published play that that, that has royalties attached, to sign an agreement with the playwright that says you have the right to produce this play on these dates. A, it's just the professional thing to do. B, I mean, this is actually a good example of something that is one of the very prime things that is in the showcase code, is that the producer needs to provide evidence to equity that they have the rights to produce the play, where they have the rights to produce the play. But if you don't... A playwright owns their intellectual property of a play, and if you don't have an agreement from them, and you end up in a some sort of dispute with the playwright, and the playwright announces you can't do their play you know what? You can't do their play. And so it's, it's, a, it's a good thing to, again, just be professional and protect yourself. And frankly, it shows the playwright that you respect them. I mean, frankly, there's a lot of playwrights who are fresh out of school, maybe, who are, this is the first production of their play. And actually, they bet there are a lot of playwrights who would be delighted to be presented with their first letter of agreement to produce one of their plays. So... Let's talk a little bit about another really critical part of the pre-production process, which is budgeting. And actually, there's one of the things that I think is really important here, and goes back to something that I think someone might have mentioned already, which is that things will go wrong. <laughs> um, that you need to budget for overruns. Right. You need to budget, I mean, 20% is actually a pretty good number to say, I need to be sure that I have 20% more than I think I'm going to need to produce this show. Because, you know, things will go wrong. And, you know, that that's something, again, Jersey has said a, a number of times because it's true. But I also think it's really important to realize that things will go wrong, but that does not abdicate your singular responsibility as the, as the producer to fix it when it does and to do everything in your power to prevent things from going wrong. But there are just always things that are going to happen and things that are going to cost more money than you thought that they were going to. And as the producer, you are responsible for that. I was in a position once where a show ran over budget and the producer went around and said, if everyone could give me $200, that would be great because we ran over budget. I'm, I'm afraid that that is simply not the way it works. And candidly, I was in a position once where I was producing a show and one of the departments went several thousand dollars over budget and really because they were hiding expenses, because they wanted fancier things than they were budgeting for and just spent money. 
and then handed in the receipts at the end. And I paid it, uh, you know, and it was frankly at a time where I really couldn't afford it. But it was my responsibility as producer to cover those costs because, you know what, I should have been watching it more closely. But that just is something, you know, to, to realize that if, if you're saying this is great because we can do the show for $3,000 because if it costs 3500 I wouldn't be able to afford my rent next month. You really, you know, you, that's not a responsible place to embark on the production. And I think a good idea f for a budget is to see if you can get somebody else's budget for a similar kind of show to what you're looking at and just see what their expenses were, what their income was, you know, just get a general idea of what are the things that you need to budget for it. You know, especially if you've never produced before, there, there may be elements of production that you have no idea that cost money. Um, and that's, you know, that's one of those things that that 20% sometimes comes for is because you didn't know it cost money to do that. And so there you need to push some money over that uh, way. Yeah. Well, especially a department that I think gets kind of overlooked is costumes. Because a lot of people go into it thinking, oh, the actors can just wear, they, they can just get costumes from their wardrobes. They can just wear, you know, their jeans and their shirts. But there's always something that, you know, maybe there's, something messy in the play and you really do need to provide you know an actor with a shirt because you don't want their shirt to get it just instances come up that you might not think of ahead of time um, and actually that's a department that I think kind of gets overlooked and I think your budget will be different depending on um, where you're producing like to produce something in New York City has a different breakdown because space is at such a premium here and uh, re renting space for the venue and for rehearsal is probably the primary expense of a New York City production budget but if you live in another town where you know there are loads of studios that are freely available for you to use that might be a zero expense in your budget if you have something available that for you know donated space is you know it, it can really affect like what, where your production department budgets break down and, and I think you want to err on the side of budgeting for things that you are not sure if you'll need rather than not budgeting for things that you're not sure if you'll need right don't assume that you'll be able to get it for free budget for it as if you have to pay for it and then if you get it for free you'll have extra to be in your emergency fund and i think an important thing that goes back to what we were saying about the goals is that that really feeds into a lot in terms of the budget that there isn't sort of an automatic this is what a this is what a, a play costs to do that there are things where if it really is i want this to be an opportunity to make great relationships with designers well, then you want to be sure that those departments have a lot of money to play with so that they'll feel like they have a really good experience. Again, if it's about getting the press there to hire a press agent. You know, things like that that, um, you know, that, that might have a, that are, that, yeah, you have to allocate your resources both in terms of time and money uh, towards the things that you want to happen in the production. And, and according to priorities, you know, the, the budgeting isn't necessarily going to be just a fiscal activity but as as Kit uh, began to say that really it's going to be a litmus test for how well you've articulated that goal that we've been talking so much about 
in this production. If you're not able to make that call, you might want to go back and say, well, really, what is it that we're going after here that we are not sure, you know? And there are going to be hard decisions, and there are going to be, um, it's, going, it's going to be, a, <laughs> frankly, a creative process um, to do this. It's, 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 it's uh, you're, not, you're not accounting, you know? You're really trying to produce something in the dictionary sense of the word that has a lot of moving parts and there are going to be sacrifices to be made and there are going to be concessions and there are going to be times when you are you know you're giving an opportunity to somebody to be creative because they don't have the money to do the thing the way that they normally would expect but as long as everybody knows what they're working toward that is an easier pill to swallow and it's a good idea also when you're uh, when you when you're thinking about finances in addition to making your budget to set up the mechanism or the guidelines for your staff on how money gets spent mm -hmm. to say, you know, this is, if you have an expense that's above this amount, you need to clear it with me before you're allowed to buy it or every expense has to come through me or I have to make all the purchases myself. Mm -hmm. Like whatever is your, your method of tracking purchases uh, and approving purchases, you need to set that out ahead of time so that it's, that you're not you know, in a situation like kid ended up with where you end up with receipts coming to you and you have an obligation to pay them because they were used in your production, that it's not backhand accounting, but forehand accounting. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And I think one of the other things that's an important part of budgeting is forecasting what your income is going to be because that mm -hmm. has a, a big part to do with how much money you need to raise to do the show. But I think you also really need to be prepared to be realistic about that because I think this is one of the most common, easily perhaps the most common mistake that a first time producer makes which is they say, we've rented a 75 seat theater, we've got it for 10 nights, so we're gonna get 750 people seeing this show. That just is not going to be true. You're not going, I mean, there is a chance you will fill the house every night, but you should not count on that. I actually worked with a company once who uh, hired me to direct a show and their previous production had been a big hit. They'd sold it out every night for the one week run that they did. And so they said, so we're gonna run this one three weeks and then imagine how much money we'll make. Well, what happened was precisely the same pool of people who came over one week and sold out the house came over three weeks and a third filled the house each night. You know, but it is just something that you, again, underestimate there. Mm -hmm. Estimate you're going to fill a third of the house every night and be delighted when you fill it more than that. But and you that, really, you really so shouldn't count on it being. And that's one of those decisions you can make in your budget as to what size of venue you rent. You know, you're estimating a third, a third of however many seats you have. So if, if you, if you want to cut some of your costs, you might consider renting a smaller venue and then you're likely to fill it up more rather than renting a larger venue and having the audience feel like nobody showed up. And in terms of uh, the length of the run, again, going back to your goal, if your goal is to get that reviewer in, uh, you may want to do a smaller venue over a longer period of time because you're not going to get a reviewer to come in if you're doing five shows in a row and that's it. Mm -hmm. And so really figuring out how that goal and the budget negotiate with each other. Mm -hmm. What about 
beyond selling tickets uh, to pay for this budget. What about fundraising, which is actually, I think, a huge question that a lot of people have uh, when they are producing their first show. Um, again, I think this is something people take whole courses on. Um, but are there any little uh, words of, of experience or wisdom that you guys have about fundraising? I think there's a wide scope of the types of activities you can engage in in fundraising for a show. A lot of that's going to be associated with what your goals are. If you want to do a one-off production or you want to do, you want to build a company, and articulating those goals to people that might want to donate to your show or company, um, or goal, or goal, right? Um, because if that's something that is identifiable as the reason for which all of this work is being done, that is going to be much more attractive mm -hmm. to a potential. Uh, a donor or sponsor than a collection of people and the name of a play and no real sense of purpose, you know, mm -hmm. um, that anybody that's going to give money, there are the people, and especially starting out early on, there are going to be people who you, you know, you can go to certain friends, you can go to family, you can go, um, you know, you as a producer should identify before you embark on any of this where those potential sources of fundraising income, where those assets are. And once you're there, there, there are those people. And then beyond that initial sort of immediate circle, which is going to be a big part of a very early um, producing project, how to attract people to your project is going to uh, rely a lot on how you characterize it. It's, again, I think every topic we're hitting here is really part uh, is really... Uh, affected by what that goal is that you set out um, because if you articulate it well to potential fundraisers they're going to be more likely to trust you and to be excited by what you're doing because they understand it. And I think it's also really helpful to realize that in terms of generally why people do things but also especially why people give money things is they do it for their reasons and that idea that to be aware that there might not be a one-size-fits-all pitch, you know, to people about the play. You know, that it might be something that deals with an important issue, and if you're talking to people who are interested in that issue, they're interested in giving to the play to support that issue. If it's a particular play or playwright that doesn't get done enough in your community and you know that people think so, then that's something. There also are going to be a lot of people who just will give you money because they like you and this is important to you. And frankly, for Aunt Bertha, she is going to feel much better about the $100 check she writes you if you say, this is something I'm so excited about and I'm so glad you're a part of it, than if you give her a 15-minute pitch on how it's going to help, you know, the the homeless in your town for people to understand their plight. You know, and, and, and that that's okay early on. You know, that most of the reasons, I mean, it's okay all the time, but, you know, most of the reasons that, you're, that we're talking about that people want to produce their own work, it really is tied into it's an opportunity to do stuff they wouldn't get to do otherwise, it's a chance to forward their career. And that idea of letting you be the reason that people are giving is totally acceptable. And again, is actually less selfish than making up something else because again Aunt Berth is going to feel a lot better about making you happy than she is about getting an Ibsen play done. And it's very unlikely in an early production that you will um, be able to 
give people a financial return. Uh, so I, you should be careful of promising those mm -hmm. kinds of things where they're, unless it's a direct, like it's a loan from your family or something where they're loaning you the money, really then you're investing it, but you've gotten a loan. But to say, you know, when I get, when we get the box office, then I can pay you this back. What, you know, what if you don't? then you're just paying them back. So really it's just a loan. Mm -hmm. So uh, really on a smaller scale, you're not so much getting an investor as a donor. Mm -hmm. Someone who's supporting the project happening, not getting money back from the project. And I mean, you can have situations where there's an investor. It's much less common. And again, usually the investor is going to lose money. But the important thing is to be sure you are very clear. And frankly, if you're going to be expecting to give money back to the person, you should really get it in writing. And if you're not expecting to give it back, you should write them a nice thank you note. But that idea of that it might be something where you say, you know what, it's a $10,000 budget. You've given me $1,000. You will get 10% of whatever we bring in. You know, so you can have an, have an investment arrangement in something like that. But, you know, you just need to be sure you're very clear and that you put it in writing so that there's no confusion later on. Mm -hmm. And confusion whether you're looking for investors or, or donors. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and one way to get people to donate to your show is for, that, for it to be a tax write-off. Mm -hmm. And it's, a, it's quite a lot of work to become a 501c3 tax-exempt organization Especially, which would allow people which would to allow people to claim it on their taxes as a, a charitable donation, uh, but there are other ways to uh, to get to get people to be able to do that. Uh, one of them is called an umbrella organization, and that is another five hundred one c three nonprofit organization that exists for the purpose of helping theater companies and artists. Um, finance their work. And so if you become a member of this umbrella organization, people can give to the umbrella organization in your name, usually for a small fee, a percentage of the donation, and then the, your donor can get a tax write-off for their donation, and you can get the money without having to go through the process of becoming a 501c3 company. Yeah. Effectively, the way that works is that that larger, um, or that I was going to say larger not-for-profit, but in that case, you're not a not-for-profit, is giving you a grant and people can donate to the fund that gives you a grant is, right. is basically um, what that comes down to. And that can be very useful. There is also another mechanism that does not allow people to write off for you, but might, but can be used either independently or, or with a fiscal sponsorship like that, which is a DBA, which is doing business as which means you go to the city offices and you fill out a form and basically it says that I am Kit Lavoy and I am doing business as Cry Havoc Productions, which actually was the setup we had for a while before we were a not-for-profit and, and an incorporated entity as Cry Havoc on its own. But what that meant was I could then bring that to my bank, I could bring that to wherever, and it says, the city says that I, for business purposes, can also call myself Cry Havoc Productions so that someone can write a check to Cry Havoc Productions and I can then, you know, cash that check 
rather than because it c can be a little bit uncomfortable especially if you're not asking real direct friends and family to say yes and the way you do it is write a checkout to me it, it i mean it's literally i think like a 15 dollar fee in new york city it's 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 really a very low-key sort of a thing to do but it, and it, it doesn't it make you useful. any less responsible for the no. business that you do while you're dba but um it is it is a matter of optics that you know mm -hmm. it it makes it it's a step that you've taken to be to be operating professionally it's a small step but mm -hmm. you know it lets you do business as yeah i mean that, that is something that that if you are a incorporated not-for-profit there's a certain level of corporate shield to that too that you cannot be held responsible for certain things on but you know whereas if you have a dba and someone falls in the theater um you are they will sue the name of the business which is you it works both ways <laughs> both when people give that business money and when people need money from that business <laughs> you it's you speaking of suing people who for falling in your theater it's a a very good idea and sometimes required by the venue that you have insurance for mm -hmm. all of your production and there are two different types of types of insurance that you might need for a small production one is volunteer insurance and that covers everybody who's working for you for free even if they're getting a stipend that covers you know it can cover medical issues you know accidents um, just anything that might happen to any person who's there because you asked them to be there and then the other kind is venue insurance and that's to protect property if there's any damage done to anything in the theater or the rehearsal space while you are working there that protects you for you know damages basically and so you should get that and if you're doing an equity showcase it's required for you to have volunteer insurance but sometimes the theater you're renting from will require you also to get venue insurance it depends on where you're working yes and actors equity is actually a really good resource for these sorts of things because i they have on their website i believe uh links to places that they recommend for these kinds of insurance and certainly especially if you're doing a uh a production that has an equity agreement of any kind you can call them and ask who they would recommend mm -hmm. and speaking of people falling down in your theater space. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, securing the theater space and securing rehearsal space, uh, which is actually, again, I think Jen mentioned earlier, really generally the largest expense of any production. What are your thoughts? In terms of rehearsal space, well, I suppose this could be true for theater space as well, but. Um, relying on whatever relationships you might have and trying to find ways that you can create um, create rehearsal space from, like I think you said earlier, Jen, that you had the resources you had in college and uh, were able to take advantage of that as you were producing. Mm -hmm. And I feel like having rehearsal space at your college, for example, or finding a way to um, have found rehearsal space, rehearsal space that may not be quite as expensive as renting by the hour down the street is one, one great thing to keep in mind as an opportunity mm -hmm. for your yeah. costs. And there are spaces, if, if you need to do this on the cheap and you need to figure out the way to have 
you know, as you know, to get the rehearsal space for as as little as possible. Uh, uh, you know, using the relationships that you have with with people who have space is is one of the key ways to do that. If you are, belong to a church and you can use their basement, if you belong to a school that lets their alumni, you know, use the space, like you said, or you know, you know somebody who has a conference room in their office that they're willing to let you use for table work. Like those are all ways that you can save money um, by negotiating. It's still a negotiation, but to say. I would like to use your space for my rehearsal. Would you agree to give it to me? I mean, it's it's you know the the basic you know donated space agreement that you can get, and and then there are some resources available online to find uh, cheap rehearsal space, like databases of rehearsal space that are available in the city, and those are good sources. If you're a member of one of those umbrella organizations, a lot of times you'll have access to discounted space. Right. Through well, them. And along those lines, if you do your research ahead of time, there's a lot of spaces that rent by the hour but are like a lot cheaper during daytime hours. And if you know that going in and before casting even, you know, when you're looking at general availability of your actors, to pick people or, you know, highly favored people that, you know, are, are able to rehearse during the day because you know that's a cheaper time to rehearse. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also just very important, whatever your choice is, to be upfront about that. I mean, I think the, the general accepted practice is if you're asked to direct a show or you're asked to be in a show that you will have a rehearsal, a rehearsal space that is a dedicated rehearsal space. There are many, many, many cases where that's not the case, again, where you're in borrowed space, but it just is important to let people know we're going to be rehearsing this in the conference room at my, you know, at the office I work in, um, and especially important to let a, a director know that. Mm -hmm. um, it, it isn't, in, in most cases, won't be a deal breaker, but it is something that is just fair play. And if you're planning to work on a union contract, there are requirements you have to meet that the union sets out um, in terms of both the theater and the rehearsal space. Um, and that's really important to keep in mind as well. Also, in terms of securing the space, I think the word securing is very appropriate because it's not about identifying options. You really want to make sure before you begin casting that you not only know that you, you've made that agreement with the theater and the rehearsal venue, or rehearsal venues, um, if, if that's the case, but that also you know the details, you know the terms, you know what hours there is availability, you know how long and at what point you will be able to get into the theater itself. Um, and you've identified based on the needs of the production when you think you can responsibly be in the theater. And that those are calls that really fall on you as a producer. I think entering the theater and loading in and getting the actors in the theater and, and, and working on set, depending on the needs of the production, there is leeway there and spending less time in the theater is going to be cheaper. But there are some instances, many instances, when it is far more responsible and is going to behoove you to um, make that investment or to sacrifice money from a different place to get in that space earlier. Mm -hmm. And those are decisions that you uh, need to be making early on in the process. Mm -hmm. And also be aware of so that when you're casting, you know that that's a consideration and set those priorities on availability or adaptability of the space to your needs. And those are places also where you can take other people's input uh, into consideration in what you do. And again, right. it's important to 
you know, it's important to be fair, as fair as possible with your people. But I also think it's important to be clear and to say no when you need to responsibly say no. Um, you know, that is the kind of thing where if you say this is the space that we booked and the director says, well, I really need a space that has 10 more feet going this way. You know, it is something that you might be able to say we can do that, but it means the rehearsal day has to be two hours shorter. I'm glad to spend the same rehearsal money on a bigger room if you think a bigger room for two fewer hours is more useful to you. Mm -hmm. um, but what I can't be. do is rehearse a bigger room for all eight hours that we have planned. So which would you like? I'm glad to do either one. Um, you know, I mean, it's not fair to be like, oh, well, either you can rehearse in this broom closet or you can have a real rehearsal room. But I mean, those are the kinds of things between a, you know, 20 foot long rehearsal room or a 25 foot long rehearsal room for one hour more or less rehearsal that's totally reasonable to have the discussion with the director about. But I think that gets into a place where, again, it is important to, to be willing to say no and put your foot down about the important things. Um, because it protects other people. Because what you don't want to do is get in a position where the director says, well, I really need a bigger room. And you're saying, okay, I'll get you a bigger room. And oh, we can have it the next day. And then you have run out of money to get all the lights that you plan to get by the time the show comes around. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's sometimes you need to be the bad guy when you're producing. And again, that's part of why I think it's so important to take your responsibility to your people so seriously, is so that when you're telling them no because responsibly you can't, people understand that you would say yes if you could. And that you take the responsibility and in that scenario, you don't go to the lighting designer and say, listen, the director needed mm -hmm. this extra space. We had to give it to him. And now because of that, you don't have the money for the lights that I promised you. That that isn't really the situation. The situation is that you didn't manage your resources effectively and are now <laughs> pitting people against each other, which is an unfortunate reality and something that happens. Um, but it really is, you know, that's, and, and actually something that was implicit that I just want to mention in, in Kit's point earlier about the story of being there with the director, Take the director to the potential rehearsal spaces mm -hmm. if, you know, if and that's the going to be And the designers, sure. Oh, the designers to the theater, uh, please, yeah. please do that. Um, it will only help. It will only help in getting that input. There will be, there might be conflict, but then you have an opportunity to resolve that conflict either before you commit to the space or um, early on before design gets long too far, before load in, you know. And also, you can use their expertise because most theaters do come along with a certain lighting package, with a certain sound package, with a certain whatever. And it is something that to have the, the, the lighting designer there and be able to say, because it often does, yes, this space does rent for, you know, $500 more a week than the, thing, than the one across the street, but it's going to save us $700 in lighting rentals. You know, because, and sometimes it's going to be, but wait a minute, it's got the same number of lights. Yes, but for the show the way we're planning to do it, this theater has the lights we need. This theater we would have to rent lights, we, would, we wouldn't have to rent if we were at the other theater. And speaking of packages, like the, the, the options for, for, for performance venues are wide ranging from completely empty room to places that offer sort of production deals along with their their rental. You you may be able to take off your own hands some of the responsibilities of the 
uh, not the responsibilities, but the you know actual manpower needed to run the front of house, or or they might provide a stage manager, they might provide mm -hmm. a technical director. All these things might be included in your venue rental, so that's something to weigh. If especially if you don't have those elements, you you might favor a theater that has that. And some some venues offer different rental deals that where they split. Um, ticket costs with you like mm -hmm. up to a certain like like 50% of the door goes to the house and you get the other 50% up to a certain number you know that they've set ahead of time so if you don't have the money because renting a, a venue is very expensive so if you if you can cut that a little bit by you know sacrificing a little bit of your potential income um, by entering some of these agreements you can research those out there's also some wiggle room occasionally, um, depending on the, the length of the run you're going to have and, and how flexible your schedule can be, mm -hmm. because there are often venues that have this two-week random gap in their schedule and might be willing to offer you some kind of a discount if you will use those two weeks that they won't offer you if you pick two more peak weeks right in the middle mm -hmm. of a, a long gap in their schedule. And that there are houses that will do something where, you know, they have... Sunday night and Monday night between shows that you can rent for a very discounted thing. You've got a, you've only got two nights and 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 you've got a um and again they're relatively off nights. But depending on what your goal is, that could be kind of perfect. I actually the very first show Cry Havoc ever did, the way we could afford to do it was not only was it on a dark night in the theater, but there was a set to another show on the stage and. But it was something that we figured out how to work with, and that was something that kept it within our budget. And so we figured out a way to do our show on the set for this other show. And actually, it was kind of nice because the show actually ended up being better designed than we would otherwise be able to make it. We just kind of had to bend over backwards a little bit to fit it to the design of the set that was already there. And I would say when you're going to visit the space, when you're looking at spaces, take the time to take pictures of it, to do measurements, because a lot of times mm -hmm. um, venues or, you know, spaces will have on their website measurements, but a lot of times they're not accurate. Um, and there we, was, we worked yeah. on a show where that was definitely the case by like 10, like 10 feet or something like I mean, that. It was, but it was, a, it, was a, it was a theater that said that it had, it was... 20 feet to the grid, I think, and the designers had designed a two-story set, and it was 14 feet to the grid. Yeah. It was 20 to the roof. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I'm not sure. Honestly, I'm not sure what it was. I don't even think it was. It was just not true is yeah. what it was. And and we, I mean, we had to totally redesign and restage the show mm -hmm. once we arrived at the space. And make sure to take pictures, too, because you're always going to get home, especially if you're looking at a lot of different spaces. You're going to get home and kind of forget, you know, especially to show to the director, you know what I mean? Like, this is what this space is. This, there's a little nook here that could be useful. Just, you know, be, be aware of the space and take your time in it when you're there. And take notes on what they offer, like what their lighting packages are. Sometimes they'll have sheets and printouts for, available for you, and those are very useful. But um, take good notes. And, um... and it's also really okay to, you know, tap the knowledge of the person who's showing you around. Because usually it's, usually it's going to be someone who knows the theater, likes talking about the theater. If you want to talk to them about, you know, what things have happened in here that's been really interesting, and then they say, oh, this, this one show is really great. The person came running down the aisle. And, well, that's interesting to know that that's effective. You also can say, 
very helpful. Are there special challenges to working in this theater? And a lot of times, someone who's worked a lot in the theater will say, you know what, there is no way to light that corner. In a way. I mean, they will tell you, and it's mm-hmm. worthwhile to know those things. It's worthwhile either to make the decision not to use that space or to know that's something you have to account for when you're right. going into production, if indeed you have to use that space. And there, and you should know, um, you should ask about any specific quirks to the space, like if there's a dance theater above you. Uh, that happened to us once where we rented a space and they told us that there is a dance company above us and we thought okay they'll be dancing but what they were dancing that week was clog dancing and it was just it was thunderous (laughs) during the middle of our performances and there was nothing that we could do and if, if we had thought about it, asked the dance theater maybe what they were doing that week maybe we would even have altered the time of our show so that it didn't so that it was, you know, staggered or something, but, you know, you, we, could, you could find those things by asking. We worked in a small theater down the hall from a much larger theater that had a high school rap group with a very enthusiastic audience mm-hmm. back-to-back with our show. Mm-hmm. And make sure if, it, if you're, a lot of times shows are, you know, it's cheaper to get space in the summer. Make sure there's air conditioning, or mm-hmm. make sure it's not really loud. Make sure you know the mechanics of what that's going to be. Test it out. Right. <laughs> Because you yourself. don't want people leaving your show because they're hot. I mean, mm-hmm. You don't want them leaving your show, but you also don't want them leaving your show because they're hot. You know, as a producer, you're putting yourselves in the shoes of the actors and the directors and the designers and everybody on your team. Put yourself in the shoes of the audience as well. If I go see a show here, where am I going to go during intermission? How close are the bathrooms? If I need to leave during the middle of it, where are the emergency exits? Are they indicated clearly? What special instructions do I need to put on my advertising materials to let people know how to get here. Accessibility. Accessibility. Um, there are a lot of spaces. I mean, space is at a premium, especially in New York City. So people are turning many different types of spaces into a theater. You know, I worked in a theater that used to be The Gap, and so it was turned outward, and there was still the big display window there. And, you know, and actually another theater company that I, I am friendly with got residency at a, another converted retail store that really had levels and balconies and all kinds of of stuff and they found a way to make it work but to really know you need to put yourself in the position of the audience member and say how because really what you're doing is trying to one of the many things you're doing is trying to create a great experience for those people that come through the door buy your tickets and spend a couple hours with you and and your show and the experience of the theater and going to the theater is part of that and a little thing especially if you are doing what you just said is when you're going to look at theaters, go look at ones in your price range. <laughs> because it is very tempting to say, we have $5,000 in our budget to rent this space for two weeks. This one is 7500 but let's see. Because you know what, the one that's 7500 there's a reason it is, and it's in 5000 and the space you end up getting is always going to be the one that wasn't that one that you saw and loved. Hmm. <laughs> And there, there are, in terms of staff and in terms of resources, that run, they run the gamut uh, of, of what you can have. And I've worked with the same, this is as an actor, but I worked with the same company who did a show um, and made the decision. I mean, there's a wonderful, wonderful facility in the city that has three theaters and they produce off-Broadway company, but also at the off-off-Broadway level, they're fully staffed. They have a bar on site. It's a non-retrofitted building. It's built to be a theater. They have a house staff. They have 
you know, they, they put people in their uh, advertising materials. It's a great package. Of course, it's more expensive. They put um, posters on the front, giant posters on the front, to, you know, facing the street. It's really you get the full deal when you work at this theater. The company that I worked with had been planning to produce a show the first time I worked with them at that theater but elected to invest in another aspect of the production because this is a very playwright-focused company and really wanted to fly the playwright to town to see the uh, premiere of the show and to be there as part of the process. But based on that investment, now that theater exclusively produces at the better space with all the facilities. That was actually the theater that was in the, the old gap because because the investment in knowing where their priorities lied, that the most crucial thing was to get the playwright in the room to be part of that discussion. And now the playwrights are in the room and there is a patron who, who will fly all of those playwrights in with every production they do so that all of the, uh, the funds and the assets can go toward producing it at the level which they want. We have actually, in starting to talk about pre-production, have actually bounced all right into production and back around because actually, really what pre-production is about is preparing for the production and, um, uh, and then it's the matter of how you manage those things once you're in there, which I think we've touched on a lot. But there's one thing we haven't touched on that I, I do want to before we, we wrap up, um, which is the, the question of marketing a show because it really is something that marketing is a very specific skill and it's one that generally a first-time producer needs to take upon themselves. So do you guys have thoughts about marketing the show? I think it's safe to say that much like everything else we've been talking about today, that the marketing and the identity of your show and the way you go about getting word about that show to the public follows a lot of the same guidelines as other aspects of production at which the root is identify what your goal is. In this case, meaning who's your demographic, who are you marketing to, and what the scope of that reach is. That if you're in New York, you're not likely trying to bring people in from far outside of New York. Um, that also you, you can identify people that would be most interested in your production and target those audiences. Um, if you're writing a press release, which is something that can be very useful, you want to target it to, in the same way that you want to look at donors and, and groups of people, uh, communities that might be friendly and interested in supporting, you want to look at potential audience groups that might be uh, in, uh, interested in attending. So you want to tailor your, your marketing and your press materials to those potentially uh, uh, similarly themed organizations, publications, groups, societies. The, I mean, the list goes on of the, the, the assemblages of people that, that might be uh, interested in your production. Yeah, I, I think that that's so important, that idea, because I do think it's a mistake that I, I see a lot of productions make which is that they modeled their marketing concept on the Broadway shows that they see advertising themselves. And the idea is you get posters, you put it up, you go. But the fact of the matter is you have to have really interesting and provocative posters if that's what's going to draw people in. There actually was one production we did that we actually put a great deal of resource and time into doing that and did have a very provocative thing 
put money into uh, reproducing them and put them up all over town. And sure enough, we actually got a lot of people who just saw the poster and thought it looked interesting and showed up. But that was a huge part of both the financial and manpower resources that we ended up putting towards it. But even, even in that circumstance, we were able to articulate who the audience was that we were trying to entice with, mm -hmm. the, with those posters. And we put the posters in very targeted locations. Yes. And then we also had business cards and we went to events and locations where we thought our audience would be and we handed out those business cards and talked to people face to face. Mm -hmm. And they had already seen our posters and knew what we were talking about when we approached them. So it was a, a long campaign and a lot of footwork to do, um, but it, and it did, it, it was successful in bringing in foot traffic essentially, but it, it took a lot of resources. And there were also, we put real effort to going online into places where that community was and putting things up online because that created a sense that, um, that it was something you were supposed to know about. That was the idea of what we really wanted to do, is put a, a hard press in a certain community that was, you know, that was the idea of I met this person on the street and I saw their poster and I went into this website and there's a thing about it on the website, that you create a buzz around it in, in that way. But again, that was something that was successful for us, but it was, again, a, a real focus of effort because we knew we were playing a reasonably large house for a reasonably long run. But it's not always necessary to do that. If you're doing a one-week run in a 50-seat theater where you're going to be able to get 250 people maximum in to do your show, there are ways to target, you know, a group of 2,000 people out of which, you know, you hope that you're going to get the 250 people to show up. And there was, there was something else that we did related to the production we were talking about before, which is actually we've mentioned in the podcast before a production of um, Romeo and Juliet, uh, in which actually Jenny played Romeo, and it was another woman playing Juliet also, but that we also reached out to um, gay and lesbian teen organizations and actually made a real effort, because it was important to us, um, to put information in the programs about support programs for gay and lesbian teens and PFLAG and things like that, but the result was that by making what was really genuinely a, a, a straightforward offer to try to help because we thought we would have people in the theater who'd be able to help, and again, it didn't cost us anything to help them. Um, it also ended up paying a dividend, which was helpful, which was that those groups which had access to the community that we were uh, thought would be interested in the show ended up talking to their constituencies about the show. Um, and there are, are very often ways if you're doing a play that deals with any sort of an issue to reach out to organizations that work with those issues. And again, it is very helpful if what you're doing is not reaching out and saying, hey, can you tell people about our show? But if you're reaching out and saying, we'd like to find a way to help you with our show, and it would be helpful if you let the people who work with you know that we're out here. I generally think that advertising for a very small show, you have to be wary of because unless you have marketing experience, you're probably not going to know where to play, where and how to place an ad in a way that will convert to ticket sales. So it, 
it's money that you can spend by yourself to advertise, but that money is much better spent by giving it to somebody who knows what they're doing. Otherwise, to take the approach that we were talking about with Romeo and Juliet, where we did everything ourselves and we knew everything that was going on, um, and we didn't place ads. It was all word of mouth, essentially, word of mouth posters, handing, you know, talking to people on the street, talking to organizations. But your alternative is to invest in somebody who has some marketing knowledge and, and let them spend your money in a way that might be more fruitful. I generally think that that idea of embracing the fact that especially for a relatively short run in a relatively small theater, it's going to be largely grassroots and word of mouth and where you want to invest your resources are on tools that you can give your people who are talking to people they know to help spread the word about the show. Uh, I mean, there's most shows, especially in New York, make postcards, which can be a helpful thing to hand out. You can put stacks of them in, you know, rehearsal venues where people will see them. But I have actually found that even more useful are uh, business cards that you design in a similar way that you design a poster with an image on one side and the production information on the other side. But that's something that's very easy to for your cast and staff and crew to carry on themselves and have in their pocket and be able to hand someone when they're talking about the show. Um, and also, the real trick of it is then the person they give it to will stick it in their wallet, will stick it in their pocket, whereas a postcard doesn't really fit either of those places, so it gets tossed inside a book or in your backpack or in the garbage. And, you know, it's just something that uh, Cameron McIntosh, apparently, uh, the producer of a lot of, you know, major Broadway and London productions, including like Les Mis and Phantom of the Opera and Miss Saigon. But one of his big things was that you can never convince an audience to see your show with an ad. You can only remind them of your existence. And if you think about that, and you did Cats also, you think about each one of those things. They have a very clear image that you've got a pair of cat eyes up on the side of a bus you remember the things that your friend said about going seeing cats and the review that that you saw but uh, but similarly the business cards are really helpful because they're things that when somebody says oh come and see my show and you say oh I'd love to generally when people say that they mean it it's just frankly your show is a lot less important in their lives than it is in your life and they honestly forget about it next time they see you they go oh I meant to see your show and they genuinely did but it's a helpful thing with the business cards and other tools to think about about ways to do it that it's you know it's something that's very easy to give to someone they're gonna stick in their pocket they are going to come across it again later when they're back near their calendar and can decide whether or not to go well, and you talked about the tool giving cards to your your people as tools um, also uh, providing some of the language about mm -hmm. the the project mm -hmm. can be incredibly helpful both in a written form for people to share via email or in in terms of preparing people the way that you would like to talk about the the project mm -hmm. the um, the goals that you've set up are, are are what you're selling now in your marketing and to give everybody the opportunity to be on the same page and pass around the same information is going to make your goal a lot easier to meet absolutely and I think that Relatedly, in an odd way, but actually something I, I do want to be sure to say before we 
we wrap up, but about that idea of giving people the tools that they need. One of the things that you do need to give, not just in marketing, although definitely including marketing, but you need to give people the time they need to do what they need to do. And one of the things that I think ties into that is to have individual department meetings uh, rather than having everything be a group production meeting because you do need group production meetings where everybody knows, kind of gets a sense of what everybody's up to. But invariably what happens if you only do group production meetings is the people who are on top of their stuff and have things that they are working on and need to talk about will take up all of the time because they have things they are working on and need to talk about. And the things that really need talking about because things aren't happening end up getting pushed to the end and get dealt with in a very brief time in the end. So you want to be sure to give all of your departments, and frankly, marketing is a big one that does a lot of times sit quietly by at a production meeting while everyone's talking about lighting and the design and cost and budget overruns and whatever else you're talking about at the production meeting. And then somebody says, and so have we got ads and stuff out there? Yeah, we've got ads and stuff out there. Great. You know, you, you do, again, you need time where you're getting the whole team together, but you also need time to devote just with, uh, you know, a one-on-one -on -one or one-on-two or whatever. Well, yeah. Do we have ads out there? Yes. Do they re reflect the content we want them to reflect? Let's hope so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And one other thing that just a, a little, especially when you're doing kind of a relatively small scale self-production of things, be aware and it's something I like to do but is dangerous and has bit me only once. But be aware of using photos of the actors in your um, publicity materials. Um, and especially like in the, in the art for the poster. Um, that it is something where, especially if you're doing a showcase or you're doing a non-equity production, it is just, actually this is important to say, it is just part of the understanding that if somebody gets paid work, you wish them well and tell them you're going to come see it and you deal with it. In terms of the things that go wrong, I would say on at least a third, at least a third of the non-productions that I've done where the actors are not being paid, someone has had to leave the production because they got other work. So that's something that you need to be prepared for. It's something I actually have said before I do as a director, but I think as a producer it's helpful to do. Whenever I'm doing a show that's in a situation like that, I always think of an actor I know who could step in and drop them a line and let them know about this great project I'm working on and I hope they'll come see it. And by the way, are you in town in August? Um, you know, just to be sure that there's a backup plan. But, you know, that also is something we have to do. But that, the importance as a producer to always have a plan B. Mm -hmm. Always have a plan B uh, because you'll need it for something. Things go wrong once in a while. And it is your job as the producer to fix those things when they go wrong and to make sure that as few things as possible do. I think that's probably a good place to wrap up. Um, if you are enjoying the podcast and would like to let other people know about it, please tell them about it. And please go to iTunes and write us a review. Uh, if you are listening and like what you're hearing but are not subscribed, you can go to iTunes and sign up there. 
If you want to know more about the Cry Havoc Company, our programs, the projects we have under development, and the public events that you can come and see, uh, please go to www.cryhavoccompany.org. If you would like to support uh, the Cry Havoc podcast and any other of Cry Havoc's many uh, free programs, please go to www.cryhavoccompany.org backslash support. And if you have any thoughts, comments, or questions about the podcast or about our work, please send it to podcast at cryhavoccompany.org. So for myself, Jen, Jenny, Jersey, Jen, and everyone at the Cry Havoc Company, thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you soon. You can learn more about the Cry Havoc Company at cryhavoccompany.org. Questions or comments can be sent to podcasts at cryhavoccompany.org. All music from this show came from the Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Thanks for listening and please subscribe.